Hey everyone, it's Angelo, and you're listening in to the Stories Podcast. It's January. I'm sorry I haven't released an episode in quite a while. December was a crazy month between work, my birthday, and the holidays. And you know what Kanye says, we wasn't supposed to make it past 25, jokes on you, we still alive. But I actually recorded an episode, and I think it must have been around the end of November. I got my friend Amy onto the show to talk about Asian Canadian identity and her incredible story of meeting relatives she never knew she had on a trip to Vietnam. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get this episode out. Amy, I wasn't trying to cut you out. I'm sorry and it's all love. Thanks for coming onto the show. I hope I can commit more and do more episodes like these so that my friends can come on and tell their stories. I hope you all really like this one. This one was special. Okay, alright, let's do this. Hi, my name is Angelo, and this is another episode of Stories with Angelo Giomatteo. Uh, I almost forgot the name of my podcast here. It's been a while. I I don't know how... It's been a while. I was in Philly for a bit, and I had class and stuff. And elections, and I had to deal with elections, so... I don't know, it's been a while since I've done this, so I, I, I'm going to try and get back in the swing of things. Um, I've got a great guest today, my friend Amy. Uh, we went to school together at U of T, and I think quite a few of the people that, that I've gotten, gotten on my podcast have been <laughs> friends from U of T, from Trinity probably. Well, Luis and Maha have been from Trinity, and Amy and I also went to Trinity. So we're just going to get the conversation going and really talk about whatever. So, you know, uh, welcome Amy to the show. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Um, I was going to also add that we're at the Lakeview and you can probably hear in the background like diner noises and, you know, soundtrack music and conversation in the background. And hopefully that's not too distracting. I don't think it will be too distracting, but... I'm kind of, kind of want that ambiance. You know what I mean? It'll take the listener right in. Yeah. So, I, I gotta ask, what are your thoughts on the Lakeview? I am always, I'm, I'm always a huge fan of their milkshakes. But I feel like what I love most about the Lakeview is the memories that I have associated with it. I didn't grow up in Toronto, so most of what I was like, what I knew about the Lakeview, I actually knew from you, Angelo, <laughs> because of how much you raved about it. Yeah, um, I, I love it a lot. It's a place where that I've grown to associate not really just with its atmosphere or its late nights or its top-notch diner food or even its milkshakes but just with the friends that I've spent time with here from so many different circles yeah for sure I this, this tends to be like quite a bit of a meeting place so I think it's pretty great that we're meeting here totally and it's actually not that bad of a place to record hopefully it's not too distracting in the background but I, you know, I love this place. I, I think you know that I love this place. I've spent birthdays here. <laughs> you know, there was that uh, one year that we went to see, yeah. that Andrea and I went to see yes. Tokyo Police Club. Yeah. And then you came to join us here. Yeah. And, and we had milkshakes. Yeah. 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 That, I think, was when, I think that was when I came in and I was like, was it raining at the Danforth? And you were like, no, this is just sweat. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, we had, were just sweating. Yeah. Because you had such a good time. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know how many other birthdays, because I, like, I can definitely count two or three in my head Mm -hmm. of birthdays here. I just think their milkshakes are top notch. They have the best strawberry banana milkshakes, I think, anywhere in the city. Shout out. Yeah. I'm not even advertising this place. (laughs) I'm just, I just love this place. And I love that it's 24 hours because I do not go to sleep. I am a terrible, terrible sleeper. And there was this one time where I was living in Chinatown and it was a really crappy place. It was this, I, I, I think you know it, the one on Baldwin. Yeah. It's, my room was like super narrow mm-hmm. and kind of gross. Yeah. And one night I was kind of around and I saw a mouse or a rat kind of crawling around my floor. I don't know this story. Yeah. Uh, so it was crawling around and I was like, uh, okay, I'm out of here. I didn't even like freak out. I didn't scream. I was just like, just like nope. Bye. Yeah, nope, 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 nope. And took my bike and biked down to the Lakeview. And I think I spent the rest of the night at the Lakeview? Yeah, probably. Yeah. You can do that here. Yeah. He's it's... not even getting paid for this, folks. Like, it's good. Yeah, I know. I know. It's... I love this place. And yeah. y- you're right. It's it's the memories, you know? And I think, I think a lot of places really come... You know, I, I love that link between a physical location and memories. Absolutely. And kind of when they come down, for, for example, is when you really realize how important that place was. For sure. Like, did you ever shop at, what's that place on Bloor and Bathurst? Honest uh, Ed's. Honest Ed's. Honest, yeah. honest, yeah. Honest Ed's was slash is like a cultural landmark. Yeah, like I remember one of the parties in first year at Trin toga party. Oh my god. <laughs> so I remember we all went to Honest Ed's yep. to pick up white sheets for I just that party. That. I just remember that. Yep. Yep. And like we were in different years in undergrad and I did that too a year after you did. Yeah, it was yeah. it was sort of like a ritual. Or it really was an institution. Yeah. You know? No, it was it it was it was the kind of tradition that you know, there was there wasn't really any there wasn't really any specific source other than, you know, hey, honest eds is cheap. I'm going to go there. But it's something that holds a lot of nostalgia. Yeah. A lot of places in Toronto, I think, are like that. Are there particular places in Toronto that you hold a particular nostalgic feeling for? I think what comes to mind for me most, again, especially especially as someone who didn't grow up in Toronto, is places that remind me kind of like of firsts um philosopher's walk holds a lot of resonance with me um as a really nice place to think a walkway between my life as a student and my life as a new torontonian um living on living in Trinity College residence meant that uh, at one point in my second year my room overlooked Philosopher's Walk and I'll still even even when I'm let's say 
walking, to, uh, let's say walking to the ROM or walking to St. George Station, I'll intentionally go up Philosopher's Walk to kind of rekindle those memories of what it was like when I was a student. Um, Nordheimer Ravine on St. Clair and Bathurst Dish, really close to St. Clair West Station, also holds a lot of resonance for me as, um, so I currently live, I currently live on St. Clair West and that area, um, that area was like, it, it's one of those very overlooked places in the city because a lot of people have north of Bloor phobia. I definitely yeah. had north of Bloor phobia when I first moved here. And, and um, I remember just going down there, um, getting off the St. Clair West Station while it was apartment hunting, going down there for a walk because I was early to, I was early to an apartment viewing and just thinking, yeah, this is this is the this is the kind of place where um, this is the kind of place that I want to call my neighborhood. Um, something that I do actually kind of want to mention. This can be on or off the record. Um, uh, I later found out that my boyfriend lives right up above the ravine. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny how these all come together. Um, and and how these how how these places hold so much significance for so many different reasons for so many for for so many Torontonians, new and old, those who have called it home forever, those who are who the, the, those who are very new to it, how it brings us together as a community. Yeah, for sure. What's your sense on the Saint Clair neighborhood? Because I mean, I, I I'm guessing you like it. To some extent, right? But it, it kind of seems to me to be this very kind of cool, up-and-coming neighborhood that was once immigrants, like yep. a very immigrant neighborhood. Uh, I know there's a Brazilian, Portuguese kind of population a little bit west on St. Clair. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot more like newer places that are kind of popping up and I don't know is it gentrification or like I know there are a lot more younger adults maybe on the upper cusp of millennials the older millennials who kind of want a little bit more to settle in the way the way that I understand it it's a lot of families with younger kids that are moving in to that neighborhood Sinclair West is very very eclectic um, definitely what I would say is that it very, very obviously gets more and more gentrified the further east you go. Um, the area, without mentioning specific uh, intersections, obviously, the area where I live on St. Clair West is kind of in a transition between that immigrant population, especially of uh, Portuguese, Brazilian, and... Um, uh, oh, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, Mexican, and Italian immigrants. Okay, cool. Um, even and and the more up and coming kind of hipstery um, areas with all of with all of these, you know, kind of overpriced coffee shops and like sustainable goods wares and vintage stores and things like that. Um, it's definitely it's definitely full of families, full of families with young kids, especially. Um, even further west than I am, it there um, eventually evolves 
closer to keel, like a, a larger, um, a larger African and Afro Caribbean population. Yeah. And that's where so, the stockyards is. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so it's it, it, it's it's very clearly it's very clearly a spectrum. It's very clearly a gradient of gentrification, and I find that interesting. I find it very eye-opening, and I do find it kind of disheartening because I wonder what that area is going to look like, even as early as in the next five years. I'm already seeing condos pop up this far, or um, you know, further further west on St. Clair, and I wonder what this buildup is going to do for those populations. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, so. Before we go any further, I got to do the little land acknowledgement, reconciliation uh, thing. And I want to actually borrow the land acknowledgement today from Living Hyphen, which is a really great book that I just read. And I, I just want to shout them out because if you, if any of you listeners have the chance to pick up this book, it's a collection of poetry and essays from Toronto authors uh, a lot of them speaking like a uh, spoken poetry written poetry artists who have come up with multimedia you know art and the idea behind it is to address what it feels like to be quote unquote Canadian but also be from a different culture in you know and that that's that's a little bit of a loaded way to, to put it but your parents are from a different uh, from a different country you immigrated from a different country you can't speak particular languages um, you know there there's the intermingling of diverse cultures within different people and how you deal with like for example me being a Filipino hyphen Canadian right uh, I think it's a, just a very cool book and you should pick it up if you can but they also go into a little bit of how it's like to be an immigrant but also have to deal with the fact that we are settlers on indigenous land and it really stands in solidarity with indigenous peoples which is why I wanted to borrow a little the land acknowledgement from the book and uh, basically and I'm, I'm just gonna put in my own uh, my own little bit of this being the podcast is that we're recording today as guests on the sacred territorial land of the Anishinaabeg Haudenosaunee people and also of the Huron-Wendat and Patoon First Nations, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. We acknowledge that this territory as the subject of the One Dish, One Spoon, Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and Confederacy of the Ojibwe and uh, allied nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Many know this land under its colonial name of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So. I asked this of all of the all of the viewers or all, all of the guests, and I'm gonna ask this to you. Answer it however you like. Just answer truthfully. What do you feel like our role is to play in indigenous reconciliation? 
Our role, I think, is to listen to the indigenous voices that have been trying to speak from time immemorial about how this land is theirs and how this land has been stolen from them, to center indigenous voices when it comes to these issues and when it comes to reconciling what we as settlers have done to a land that we are now calling our own, but is not truthfully ours. I think about this a lot when it comes to my identity as a Canadian and the words that I choose when it comes to um, when it comes to defining where I come from because although I was born in Canada although I do consider Canada home to what extent is it really home as a descendant of or as as a settler as someone on stolen land I try to be mindful of how a phrase, for example, um, such uh, how, how a phrase like being grateful for indigenous people sharing this land with us, how that comes across knowing that there was never really an option that through, um, through colonialism and through white supremacy. I think that we do have very integral roles as, fatils, uh, as facilitators of this conversation. Ultimately, I would like to hear more Indigenous voices and to really be able to be mindful and to take a step back. Um, one thing that I have actually seen lately, um, and what I really liked about your land, about the land acknowledgement that you provided from Living Hyphen, was that you specifically cited the source. Something that I've noticed in generally in smaller, more creative events, is that um, non-indigenous um, event managers who have been creating these events, if they choose to have a land acknowledgement in uh, in their event before whatever presentation they've come up with. They'll often, um, they'll often create that land acknowledgement with the help of an indigenous activist, an, um, an indigenous friend of theirs who knows what they're talking about, um, someone who can really speak that truth to power, and they'll specifically cite, they'll specifically mention that source, which I really like because it allows us to kind of... Um, to recognize who are the indigenous voices, who are examples of those indigenous voices that we have been silencing for centuries that we now need to listen to more and more integrally than ever. For sure. I really like that answer, and I think you are completely right. And I understand that that's part of my role as well, to listen and also to, to learn, to, to learn about our colonial mindset and really think about the phrases that we use, the the way that we were things. And I think with, with a lot of things, with not just indigenous reconciliation, but definitely for sure an emphasis on indigenous reconciliation is that we should just shut up and listen to the people that are really important, the people that are really affected and hurting. Absolutely. I think that goes for a lot of things, but especially for Indigenous peoples, I think you're completely right that it's a matter of listening to the Indigenous voices who can speak truth to power, who can speak for, you know, their Indigenous experience. And I, I think it really is 
up to that. And I think, you know, as much as I, on this podcast, try and ask questions of the guests who so far have been non-Indigenous, you know, there's only so much that we can say exactly without you know the real lived experience of an indigenous person absolutely i think it's all it's it's all a process of learning and unlearning yeah for sure so okay this kind of gets down to the main question the whole raison d'etre of this whole podcast and i know you have a big story to tell i know you have you know all these life experiences I'm not going to, you know, you can answer it however you'd like, but I'm going to ask you, what is your story? Where do I begin? (laughs) I don't know if I would say that I have as much of a big story to tell as I have a lot of little stories all rolled into the experience that has been my process of living. I think when it comes to the stories that I want to tell, they all deal with transitions. They all deal with not necessarily overcoming struggles and challenges, but making my way through them, knowing that every challenge that I face is an opportunity. And even though I, when I look back at the experiences that I've had, when I look back at my life in general, I have been very fortunate. I do come from places of relative privilege, especially being Canadian, being brought up quite well off, being educated. I would definitely say that the struggles that I have had to face have, for lack of a better phrase, helped shape me into who I am today and will continue to the more that I proceed through this very long, this hopefully very, very long and hopefully very eventful life. Because so far it's been pretty eventful up until now, I think. Okay. Um, And tell me about where you came from. And I, you know, I'm... I'm gonna leave it to you to answer that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I know your background. I know uh-huh. where you're from, but you know, you should answer that however you'd like. Absolutely, and it's so funny because whenever I am asked, "Where are you from?" it's almost like the it's it's almost like the quintessential the quintessential immigrant or second generation immigrant question, where there are so many different ways that you can answer that. Um, My first thought is, I I live in Toronto. I have lived in Toronto for the past just over seven years. I was born in London, Ontario, moved to Victoria, BC, um, over on the west coast of Canada when I was about five. Lived there until graduating high school. Would still consider Victoria my hometown. Um, but do now consider Toronto home after having moved here for university and never looking back. I am the daughter of a huge family of doctors, um, lot to live up to. Um, my, my parents met in Montreal at McGill University doing their residencies. My father was born in Montreal as a 
third, yeah, as a as a third generation immigrant with a family from what is now a bunch of different European countries: um, Germany, Ukraine, Hungary, Romania, Austria. I think there's some French in there. No Great Britain or Ireland. I know that. Um, a huge smorgasbord of European that I generally just kind of classify as Euromut. <laughs> and then um, my mother and her entire and, and and her entire side of um, of the family is Vietnamese. Um, so I am I am very proudly mixed race. And when I think of my life as a series of transitions, one of the transitions that I think about a lot, one of one of those feelings of one of those one of those very significant struggles and ambivalences that I've lived with my entire life and still live with is that feeling of being caught in the middle. Um, my basically long story short, my mother and her family um, lived in Vietnam during the uh, during during the Vietnam War, or rather, what we know in North America as the Vietnam War. In right. Vietnam, it's completely different depending on where in Vietnam you are, obviously. Um, and then my mother, her four siblings, and my grandmother. My grandfather was in Canada at the time. He'd been in Canada for about five years, helping sponsor my family, uh, the rest of the, the the rest of the family. They fled on a plane, getting as many refugees out of Saigon as possible on April twenty seventh, nineteen seventy five, three days before what we know in North America as the fall of Saigon. Oh wow! Yeah. So I am. I am kind of like. A second and a half generation immigrant, so to speak, um, and I am I am the descendant of refugees. I am the daughter of a refugee. That that's always been a little weird to me of trying to figure out what generation immigrant you are. Absolutely, that's, absolutely. That's always a weird conversation. Like, <laughs> what counts as first, second generation? Are you if if you're like for example i'm born in the philippines yep. but i immigrated when i was three years old mm-hmm. all i can ever remember about my life is in canada it's here in canada so does that make me a first generation immigrant or just an immigrant like do is is first generation immigrant mean that you personally immigrated like you yourself immigrated to canada or does it mean that your parents immigrated See, where I thought you were going with this was that last question, the whole idea of there being kind of two different schools of thought when it comes to our terminology for immigration, with first generation being either the first generation after immigration or the first generation to arrive in the place where, or to arrive to the place where one immigrated from. Um, So far, I've seen more people use the latter I used to use a former, so I used to say that I was first and a half generation, um, but I'm honestly, because of this, because of these dichotomies and because of these very fluid and very confusing 
different definitions. I'm still not 100% sure. But then you talked about how even though you were born in the Philippines, your entire life that you can remember is from after moving to Canada because you moved to Canada at a very, very young age. So then you have ideas like memory and how long you were in your country of birth playing playing significant roles there. And that makes it even more convoluted and even more of an interesting question. But I think ultimately it's like, you know, what do you consider yourself? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why, you know, that that's sort of this whole thing behind this podcast of what is your identity, right? Like when I ask what is your story, you are telling a particular story about yourself and who you are, what your identity is. And for a lot of people who, especially living in Canada, are immigrants or their parents are immigrants or the grandparents are immigrants, they have particular stories of trying to grapple with their identity. Absolutely. Right? And, you know, I'm wondering if that was the same for you and how you had to feel your way, I guess, between being... I guess half Vietnamese? Yep. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot that I've had to unpack being simultaneously mixed race, caught in the middle, but also growing up and still living a very westernized life. Um, Most of that, I think, was out of convenience. my parents having met here in Canada, my mom not really having much of a desire to return back to Vietnam. Um, English being the primary language that I was taught. Um, factors like getting a, be- uh, getting a better education, not having to struggle perhaps as much as my mom and her family did when they, when they immigrated to Canada. Um, basically that that whole idea of making things easier for your child but at the same time the other thing that I do think about is in retrospect considering my mom and her siblings and um, and like my extended family and how they raise their kids my mom was definitely the one person in her family, um, out of her and my four aunts and uncles, she was definitely, I think, the one who assimilated the most. She is the one who has lost the most of her ability to speak Vietnamese. She's the one who has, she has basically no trace of an accent whatsoever. Um, Vietnamese was her first language, but she struggles to speak it a lot now. I don't think I've I can't, I honestly can't remember, um, I can't remember the last time I really heard her speak it unless it was like out of necessity, and I'll go into that a little bit more later. Um, And because of that, I didn't grow up with a lot of Vietnamese influence. Um, I, and I wonder if that would have changed, let's say, if I, if, if she, if she wanted to hold on to her roots a bit more or if I lived closer to my maternal grandparents. Um, when I lived in, when I lived in London, Ontario, they lived in Florida 
and when I lived in Victoria and now, um, now that I'm here in Toronto, they live in Houston, Texas. So they've always been quite far away. Um, so I didn't grow up with a, I definitely didn't grow up with like equal representation of both cultures in my life. I was generally, I definitely saw my dad's, um, my dad's side of the family a lot more. I saw my paternal grandparents more often, my, um, my aunts and uncles and cousins on my dad's side, on the white side. And I generally remember also finding it a lot easier to relate to them. And in hindsight, I don't know how much of that is a racism problem. I don't know how much of that is out of convenience or out of geographical distance. But one thing that I'm actively trying to do as an adult is re is constantly remember that there are two sides that is that there are two halves of me that do not have to be in conflict with each other. They don't one of them doesn't have to take precedence over the other. And that's a different form of um that's that's almost like a different form of reconciling those two parts of me to make me a whole me. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a lot of immigrants have had to deal with that struggle of trying to figure out, okay, you know, I am I am, you know, Filipino, but I am also Canadian and how do I mm -hmm. how do I deal with that? And then yeah. I, I also understand that there is a difficulty, I guess. I guess a difficulty, mm -hmm. if if you don't mind me saying, mm -hmm. of being half. Yeah. Right. And for sure. and I know, I know some friends who are half as well, yeah. and trying to figure out mm -hmm. that feeling. Absolutely. Right. I, I I can't speak for for your experience on that, but in some ways, in some ways, it's different from mine, where I can say I am Filipino. And I'm Canadian. Yeah. Whereas you, you have mm -hmm. more than that, and it's more yeah. nuanced and more complex. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to ask this question because I kind of struggled uh, with it when I was growing up, mm -hmm. and I think in in some ways you you talk about how you didn't really like be a part of the Vietnamese culture all that much, much. or yeah because you were a, closer to your to your father and you were a little bit away from your mother's culture but the the thing that I struggle with is how do you deal with the Asian identity part of it right like in some ways when I was in, growing up I had to not just deal with being a Filipino, but also being part of a greater community of Asians, Asian mm -hmm. Canadians, Asian Americans. Yeah. And when I was growing up, it was, you know, I watched the Korean dramas. <laughs> um, I drank bubble tea. I watched Wong Fu Productions on YouTube. Uh -huh. You know, th this yeah. sort of Asian American kind of identity, mm -hmm. which is in some ways distinct from your mm -hmm. i guess local whatever yeah. you want to call it your yeah. local culture uh-huh it, it's a, it's a ve it's a very difficult yeah. subject to try and talk about right because it's so mm -hmm. it's you're walking a fine line between all of these different cultural oh, yeah. boundaries oh, yeah, so definitely. 
where do you kind of yeah. draw that line? Yeah. But when I was growing up, it was almost like I didn't feel like I was Asian enough. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I was too Asian it depend- for it the depends. culture. It kind of like depends on who you're with or where you are and what your circumstances are or your surroundings. Exactly. Yeah. Like, did did that factor into how you felt while you were growing up? Like, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. was it a thing in Victoria where you had to deal with this this issue of like, you know, I am I am Asian, but I'm also not Asian, and not just you know Vietnamese. For me, mm-hmm. not just Filipino, yeah. but really Asian and I, I'll also add one yeah. other thing mm-hmm. uh, to, to start this off are you on the group subtle Asian traits I was gonna mention subtle Asian traits in my response okay I am NOT in subtle Asian traits itself I am in several offshoots of subtle Asian traits I can't that I can't remember exactly off the top of my head I know I'm in one regarding mental health I know I'm in one regarding queer Asians um, there are a couple of others that I'm forgetting, but I am familiar with some Asian traits. Yes. Um, so that whole idea of kind of that whole idea of figuring out your identity as an Asian in the diaspora is so nuanced and there's so much to unpack, especially kind of when you consider what people perceive the Asian Canadian community to look like, um, how, how people have perceived that over time. That's Be- why I think I'm having a little bit of difficulty yeah. trying to yeah. describe this, yeah. right? I think I'm struggling with it and we're all still mm-hmm. trying to figure yeah. what that means as you were mm-hmm. saying, right? For sure. Um, so the thing that most comes to mind for me actually is um, so with us two specifically, you're Filipino, I'm half Vietnamese, we're Southeast Asian. Similarly, we can also look like if we if we apply that to a greater scale and we consider, you know, we consider other Southeast Asians, we consider South Asians, we consider Central Asians. There are a lot of groups that are excluded when we think of like that typical Asian diaspora uh, diaspora community because generally a lot of people like to slap the East Asian label onto it. So I remember when I was growing up, I really, really leaned into the whole like bubble tea kind of thing, the whole K-dramas kind of thing, the whole, you know, being good at math kind of thing. All of these stereotypes that fit a lot of, or that are, are used to label a lot of East Asians. And that was made, that compartmentalizing was made so much easier by the fact that growing up on the West Coast, the Asian population is primarily Chinese. Um, there, and there's some Japanese and Korean as well, some Vietnamese, um, also, some, uh, 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 also a, few different, um, a few different types of South, uh, of, um, of South Asian populations. But it's primarily, primarily East Asian. So it's very easy to put that label on. And when it comes to um, when it comes to something like subtle Asian traits, um, I think one of the reasons that there were so many offshoots of that group were because was because I think there were a lot of Asians who felt like they didn't fit those stere- who didn't fit certain stereotypes that were coming up more and more in subtle Asian traits and were like, I'm technically part of this community, but I don't feel like I am. Let me 
carve out a piece of let, let, let me carve out a piece of this community that I do feel like I fit in. And when it comes to that whole idea of being Asian Canadian, I definitely I definitely do consider myself half Asian. I think I actually say that I'm half Asian more than I'm half Vietnamese. Sometimes because I like to keep people guessing as to what exactly the Asian half <laughs> is, um, and some of it is just to make it e- just to make it easier to understand. But it's so nuanced, and there's so much to think about because now that we know that there are so many different ways to be Asian, especially in especially in the diaspora. What does a cohesive Asian community look like, and does right. it really exist? Right. And I mean, the Asian community is so diverse that it's hard to really, I guess, solidify it into one idea or concept. When oh, really, yeah. they are a multitude and di- diverse, you know, group of of people. Yes. Right. Um. I guess I, I do want to bring up hopefully I can if I can bring this up and yep. if not I'll edit it down uh, Ali Wong and her comment about Southeast Asians oh I love her yeah um, Ali so yeah. so talking about mm-hmm. like Asian Americans yeah. and Asian Canadians yeah. there are certain I guess icons or certain people that that we kind of look up to and yeah. I think Ali Wong really breaks down that the idea of being an Asian American totally in a really a, a hilarious way but mm-hmm. the comedy that she she has I I particularly relate to yeah even though I'm Filipino and I mm-hmm. don't fit the East Asian stereotype but there are other things about being Asian that I think she does hit on and also, that Southeast Asian comment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do I just go ahead and say it? Go right ahead. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I also don't know which one you're talking about. Okay. The fact that Southeast Asians are jungle Asians. Oh yeah, yeah. The 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 fancy Asians versus jungle Asians one because yeah. she, because she's half Chinese and half Vietnamese. So I do think that she is like entitled to make that statement. Yeah. Because it will it, it was it was um it was either that or the one about um or the one about her and her husband because her husband is half Japanese and half Filipino. So together they're like half fancy Asian and half jungle yeah. Asian. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when when I was growing up within my Filipino friends mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk about us being the Mexicans of Asia which was a very weird conversation to me to, to have and it kind of plays into this whole jungle Asian thing like I'm not offended by Ali Wong's comments uh, that we are jungle Asian but it's it's a weird conversation to have Really, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think a lot of people have grappled with it. Mm-hmm. I've really figured that out, and I think that's why Ali Wong's comedy mm-hmm. hits really well. Totally right, because it it tries to hit at almost kind of vulnerable vulnerable discussions about being Asian American, mm-hmm. but being it like being really funny at, oh, at yeah. hitting those awkward parts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, something that 
that I also like to think about when it comes to those different um, those different kind of regional differences between different areas in Asia, like the fancy you know fancy Asia versus jungle Asia, is that when it comes to like Southeast Asia, for example, those countries didn't really choose to be jungle Asians. Like Vietnam has been colonized and conquered by God, like at least a dozen different colonizing powers basically for as long it is like for as long as it has been a country and like don't yeah. even get me started on Cambodia or on Laos or on Indonesia or on Malaysia especially when a lot of um, when a lot of those powers have been other Asian um, have um, have been other Asian powers oh for so sure you, yeah, exactly so you yeah. have a lot of politics coming into this as well yeah, and I know that there are families who mm. are one particular Asian yeah. who their their country of origin was invaded by, yeah. let's say, Japan or China yeah. um, in previous world wars, mm-hmm. and they still hold on to that rival, that that grudge. Really, mm-hmm. it's it's also kind of crazy to me. I, I completely understand this phenomenon, but mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting how the conflicts of the generations before us yeah. still pass down to us. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Like, um, for example, there are friends that I know who are uh, Serbian and Croatian, and you know, for all intents and purposes, they're con- they're here in Canada. They weren't immigrants. They were born here, and they they don't know the war. They don't mm-hmm. they don't know what happened in the nineties. They didn't mm-hmm. live through that, but their parents did. Yeah, and yeah. their parents might have passed along that some of those some of those mindsets, yeah. right? Or if they didn't pass that along, kind of convince them to think that way. You know what I mean? I know yeah. that that's that's a little bit of a tricky conversation mm-hmm. to have, yeah. but I think it also applies a little in the, the Asian cases you yeah. just as you just mentioned yeah. of some countries being invaded and colonized mm-hmm. by other Asian countries, mm-hmm. and that some people still hold almost like a rivalry against other Asian countries. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. That's something I've never really thought a lot about when it comes to my own personal experience or when it comes to my family. But one thing that does, one thing that I am thinking about right now, kind of a response to that, is that one thing I've kind of always been interested in is like taking one of those DNA tests, like a 23andMe test, to determine like whether I'm more like ethnic Vietnamese or whether, or like how much like Chinese there is in me, for example, because of how long China colonized Vietnam. Um, So like if you look like um if i showed you a photo of my mom and her siblings right now um and my grandparents come to think of it they all look like they obviously do look related but some of them do look more maybe indigenous vietnamese some of them do look more east asian as well and that's kind of interesting when it comes to um when it comes to this idea of of the intersections between all of these um between all of these different nations and all of these and sometimes sometimes it manifests itself in conflict and then sometimes it manifests itself in like the 
genetic and ethnic makeup of its people, which is interesting when you pointed out um, that kind of stigma of Filipinos often being uh, being seen as um, um, as as almost like the mestizos of Asia or something like that. Yeah, because of um, most of that is really because of colonization. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, the Philippines has been colonized by uh, the Spanish. Oof. And then the Americans, Americans, and then the Japanese, yeah. and then my Filipino relatives will say that we're being colonized by the Chinese now. And it, it really is also a mixing pot of all of those things. So tell me a little bit about Victoria, because yeah. I know like the West Coast in Vancouver yeah. is, I've been there once, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful place. Yeah. And I'd love to go back again, yeah. and it, it just seemed like a fresh air. You oh, know? yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Really fresh air, fresh sushi. <laughs> um, I do miss the seafood. I always miss the seafood. Yeah, so tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about growing up in Vi- Victoria, because I know Victoria is different than Vancouver, but yeah. it's also on the West Coast. Yeah. So, you know, what was that experience like? Growing up in Victoria, I think, was probably the best place where I could have been raised. Um, it was an incredible place to grow up. I felt safe. I, I found it easy to get to know people through my family. It's a place that I, I never really get homesick for, but I do miss. I love going back there. It's a great place to it, it's a great place for someone to raise their kids. It is a place that I have turned my back on in terms of living there and I'm very glad I did now that I live in Toronto because there is also very much a small town culture in Victoria as a city with a population of not a small town. And that's never the most fun situation to find yourself in. That's never that's never the safest environment where you where you'd want to find yourself stuck in, especially in your adolescence. Could you explain what you mean by what you say, small town culture? Or yeah. yeah what, for sure. what did you mean yeah. by that? Mm-hmm. So Victoria is a Victoria is a city of I think roughly. Roughly a hundred thousand, about 250,000 if you count like the Greater Victoria area. It is the capital city of British Columbia, so it's not a small town. It is a city with a relatively substantial population, but it's not very diverse. It's pretty white. Um, with like with with a noticeable East Asian, South Asian. Um, kind of Middle Eastern pop, uh, Middle Eastern populations, but mostly white. Um, in my particular case, I um, because I grew up pretty much upper middle class in a family of doctors. I went to private school basically from kindergarten to grade twelve. Um, because my parents were both doctors and Victoria generally has an older population. Every time I went out somewhere with my parents, we would run into at least one of their patients. So all of these different factors, also not to mention the fact that Victoria is on an island, so it's very isolated. Um, 
the distance from Victoria to Vancouver is about half an hour plane ride, or if you don't want to pay like $200 one way, um, it's a 90 minute ferry ride. So it is still pretty far from Vancouver. You could go there for the day, but like you would need to, it, it's, it's not necessarily like it is traveling throughout the GTA, mm-hmm. for example. So all of these factors, this isolation, this clickiness, this lack of diversity made me constantly think when I was probably from around the ages of 11 to 17, it, those factors really pretty constantly made me think, where can I go from here? And it wasn't a feeling of hopelessness. It was more a feeling of knowing that something was out there and knowing that there was so much more that I could explore. There was so much more that this world had for me. Okay. Um, that's a really interesting experience out in the West Coast. And I didn't yeah. know that as much about Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, Vancouver is very different. Yeah. 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 Um, so you can you can choose to tell me or not about sure. your experience at Trinity, but mm-hmm. I guess kind of go, mm-hmm. kind of growing up and yeah. trying to figure out what you want to do with uh-huh. the rest of your life and yeah. trying to figure out your career. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we're all at that stage yeah. of you know trying to get our jobs and mm-hmm. getting more educational experience if we yeah. can afford it mm-hmm. or trying to figure out what we want to do yeah. right so you know tell me about trinity if you want yeah. tell me about mm-hmm. that journey from trinity into starting off your career yeah. where you're at now mm-hmm. yeah um so moving moving on to trinity college um for university kind of in some respects felt a little bit like a continuation of what I had gone through in high school, having gone to a small private school with a graduating class of literally 69. But in some respects... 69? Literally, literally 69. Literally 69. I'm yeah. really mature, apparently. No, it also impresses me greatly. Um, even after, like... God, like ten, almost... Ten years? Almost, almost ten years? Almost ten years. Like nine... Like eight, nine years. I, 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 I can't do the math off the top of my head, but um, definitely felt a little bit like a continuation of that, but also in a much grander scheme of spaces. Being a small community, such as Trinity College, in a much bigger, in a much bigger physically and populationally bigger environment like Toronto, meant that I would say I was really able to take advantage of both. I was able to take advantage of the opportunities in Toronto and the closeness of Trinity. Um, Trinity College was actually recommended to me by a good friend of mine in high school in Victoria. Um, So I took her word for it. Do I know this person? Madeline Taylor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Shout out to Maddie Taylor. Yeah, I miss you. Um, I think I've known her. I think I've known her since, like, she was in grade five and I was in grade four. And we had quite a few similar interests. And I knew that she was at U of T when I was, like, looking into into universities. And she recommended Trinity to me. That's what Um, I thought. I remembered that it was a mutual friend. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Um, and Trinity does tend to attract um, students from a similar upbringing as me, not necessarily exclusively, but there is a lot of appeal in going to a school that's where it's where you can get into you can get into raucous political debates, you can have that feeling of closeness, you're among, you know, like-minded peers, academically minded, so to speak, or not not to say that that's gonna carry on when you actually get yeah. into Trinity. Um, that's what's advertised. That's exactly what's advertised. Exactly, exactly. And I will say that I definitely did find my community at Trinity. It was not necessarily the community that was advertised to me. Um, it was a community that it was a, it was a community and a group of friends that I found because we happened to be in the same place, but we all bonded and moved past our physical surroundings over things that were much bigger than where we physically were. And Toronto, that's kind of where Toronto comes in, because you can leave the closest of Trinity and go out into the big wide world of Toronto. And that was something yeah. that, that was something that I really needed growing up in a small city like Victoria where I felt isolated. You are talking about our friendship with NRAC. Obviously. Right? Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and, so... Yeah, NRAC and NRAC adjacent. Yeah. So for everybody listening, <laughs> NRAC is the Non-Resident Affairs Committee. Committee, committee yeah. But when... But we just generally lovingly call the people that hung around the common room for non-residents NRAC and we had our own little community there and I think you're exactly right because none of us w well some of us lived on res for like initially I lived on but res then, for the first two years yeah. yeah but then we moved out ended up living elsewhere um, I moved back with my parents mm -hmm. and a bunch of us commuted from home yeah. um, had like hour plus commutes and I think we all sort of bonded over that experience. I think like in some ways our home was more like the subway and the go train, you know? That's, that um, specifically was not a commuter, like that, that commuter experience was not something that I could relate to because I, when I, when, when I, when I moved off of residence, I literally moved like two minutes away from U of T, but at the Where'd same- Where'd you live? Oh, uh, like Bloor and Spadina. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't have that. I wasn't able to share that experience of, you know, you know, thinking, do I have enough money for a Metro Pass this month? Oh, how much money? Like, like, hey, can I, like, hey, can I, can I borrow a token? Does anybody have any meals in their tea card? I'm hungry and I left my lunch in Saga. Things <laughs> like that. That's not, even though that's not something I can relate to, there was that feeling in the common room. There was that feeling from the people that were on, that 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 frequented that space of just being able to let your guard down and not have to put on the airs that you would often see people put at Trinity. Yeah, um, for sure. One thing that um, one thing that um, that does come to mind is. And I can't remember who said this. I can't remember whether this was one of us who said it or whether this is a comment made about us. But 
there was this general impression that NRAC ha- like was like the ethnic population of Trinity College. Oh, and I, yeah. And like, and, and, and like something I think about is that whole idea of like not necessarily being able to afford residence um, or, you know, living with your parents because that's what's within your means. And when you, I guess, kind of when you think about, um, when you think about all those other intersectional factors, um, that's something that, that's something that could have brought us together. I think that's exactly right. And I, it's interesting to me that you brought up that that's ethnic, uh, ethnic trinity, I think. That's a very interesting way to think about it because it is. Mm-hmm. In some ways, there's there's a logic behind that. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. that's true. Uh-huh. I am using like very liberal air quotes for that. Yeah, but at yeah. the same time, it's like th- 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 this is definitely something that we can unpack. We spent uh-huh. too much time in that that's- common room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We spent too too much time in that common room. Like, how many days have I spent there where I spent over twelve hours? I was gonna say in that you, room. Did you ever sleep there? I slept there all like. Overnight? Overnight, overnight. Okay, no, I, I did not sleep there overnight. Oh, I did I don't once. think I did. I mean, like, my, my apartment was two minutes away, and, I, and like, I, I, like, stayed overnight there once. Yeah. I, like, because I think, I think this is when I was on the executive. I just, like, broke in with my key and was just like, fuck this. <laughs> uh, I was commuting from Mississauga at the time. Yeah. And I remember getting to campus by nine-ish. Yeah. And getting in the common room, putting my stuff down, yeah. and immediately going to sleep. Yep. I I didn't oh, do anything yeah. else. I just yeah. literally went to sleep. Next thing I know, you know, I've skipped my class, and I'm of like, of course. Oh fuck it. And yep. then people kind of start coming yeah. in, and there's, then there's a rotation. Yeah. And then someone what, we, brings snacks. Yeah, we start watching Skins. Skins. Yeah. Um, playing Mario Kart. Oh my god. Whatever it is. Yeah. Whatever you know, whatever exploit it is of the day, and there oh, yeah. are too many exploits, and some yeah. of them probably we shouldn't talk about on the podcast. But those are yeah. those are good times. Not without yeah. the consent of the people involved. Yeah. And then and then I would leave at like 10 p.m. to yeah. catch my go bus back Basically. to Mississauga. Basically. And I hadn't left that room. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Also keep in mind that this is a room with like one door and no windows unless you count the window that was like open to the buttery which was indoors and the blinds were usually closed up until after you graduated but yeah, yeah. It, was, it was all artificial light <laughs> it was very very physically isolating but also really good for community building yeah and also smelled terrible oh at times. Oh god, oh god, yeah. And like now it doesn't look like that. Like it's it's relocated to it's it's relocated to Melinda Seaman, I think. And is like fuck. I think it's like literally whitewashed and there's like minimalist it's been concrete. Gentrified. It's been gentrified, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There's just like rose rose gold and like cacti and like hexagonal prisms and yeah. shit like that. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, how about uh, coming up after mm-hmm. Trinity yeah. and trying to figure out where you are now? Totally. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Definitely, it was definitely difficult trying to, it was definitely difficult trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do after Trinity because I didn't have the best grades in university. I definitely had that, like, 
big fish in a little pond jumps out of the little pond and then realizes that the pond that she's jumped into is actually very, very, very big and also full of former big fish from little ponds. Yeah. Um, my, I had really, really great grades in high school. They sank in university and my GPA never really fully recovered. So it got to a point at the end of third year, beginning of fourth year, where I kind of felt like I was at a loss. I started university wanting to do medicine, mostly because I came from a family of doctors, realized that I neither had the grades nor the interest in going into medicine, but knew that I wanted to go into healthcare um, because of that, just kind of that innate interest and passion that I had in being involved in medical care, in patient care, in helping people on a community level. So I looked into college programs. I went to Centennial College in Scarborough for a pharmacy technician diploma for two years, basically almost immediately after finishing at Trinity. Um, to provide like a little bit of um, to provide a little bit of context, a pharmacy technician is to a pharmacist basically what a nurse is to a doctor. So we do all of like the medication handling. We do all of we we do all of the hands-on technical work, but we don't actually diagnose patients with anything. We don't prescribe. We don't give advice. That's not legally under our scope of practice. So. In a way, now, in, in, in a way, I was looking for work in a field where I didn't have to worry as much about more and more and more years and years and years of education. And it was definitely less expensive, which is also a bonus. But I am, but I was still interested and I am currently working in the field that I've wanted to work in since I was a child, just in a different way. And I initially, honestly, felt a little bit of conflict, almost disappointment and worrying that I was disappointing my family in not becoming a doctor or in going to college after getting a Bachelor of Science. But then I realized that I worked hard throughout my life for where I ended up. And I found a different way, a different path towards becoming happy. Yeah, for sure. That, that's really cool. And I appreciate that you told me all of that because I certainly relate. And trying to figure out your career is, yeah. is really hard. It's and tough. Yeah. yeah. And when you think you want to do something when you're going into university. Oh, yeah life really changes that's something that i find really astounding is that like you're kind of brought up as a child up until age 18 really with no responsibilities and then as soon as you hit grade 12 it's like all right now you need to like now you need to know what you want to do for the rest of your life oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i went so when i went to philly we went to a family event a family friend event okay and we met Mm -hmm. i met a family there who had these these kids and one of the kids was in grade 11 or 12 Mm -hmm. and she was thinking about what university to go to and what she wanted to study Mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff and I just had to tell her like if you can take my advice don't worry about what you want to do at this 
age. Mm -hmm. Because it's okay if you don't know. Exactly. Because I think a lot of people coming out of kids coming out of high school now are expected to know what they want to do for the rest of their life. Yeah. And that whatever they end up choosing to go to in university mm-hmm. is what they'll do. It's just gonna be what they're gonna do for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it's There's like predetermined. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how it is in like back in where you went to high school, but in the Mississauga region, yeah. they now have these things called the specialist high school majors. Huh. So you can basically specialize and take particular courses in a particular field for your grade 11 and grade 12 in Mm -hmm. high school Mm -hmm. and then you just graduate with an extra remark on your on your diploma that says you specialized in this thing i don't even know how that would be helpful yeah but i find that that's something that 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 might actually be a bad because yeah. why how should we know? yeah how do you know and why should we mm-hmm. be expecting people who are yeah. 16 17 mm-hmm. even even up until like 18 or 19 to figure mm-hmm. out what they want to do for the rest of their life absolutely absolutely so when um, so when I went to high school because I went to private school um, I can't speak to the BC public education system I'm not sure if there is or was a program similar to that I wouldn't be surprised if there were um, but at my at my private school, there was very, very much an expectation that you went to university. Um, if you didn't go to university, it was because your parents were wealthy enough that you could afford to take a gap year, gap year, and travel around the world and just chunda everywhere. Um, <laughs> oh God, that's from a very old YouTube video. Oh God, uh, dating myself here. Um, but there was there was very much this expectation where if you weren't really interested in not even just in post-secondary education specifically in university you were kind of seen as a failure and as wasting the education that you had gained from high school and that kind of that kind of entrenched behavior was what made me so ashamed at first to think that I was resorting to college. And in fact, it's not like that at all. If anything, I am working in a field that I didn't find at all through university. University definitely helped with my critical thinking skills and definitely did provide me with life experience that is valuable, but I'm not working in the field that I studied in. Mm-hmm. for university. I'm working in a field that I found basically four years after undergrad, which considering that I would have been around, yeah, 21 at the time, in the in the mindset of like a high schooler, that seems so old. Like, how can you think that you, how, how like, how, how can you think that you don't have your life together by the time that you're out of high school? But in fact that path is never set in stone. Yeah. And that's something that I think, that's something I wish that I had had a better grasp on. And that's something that I would like. That's something that I would like kids to, that's something I'd like kids and teenagers to know now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, I I don't know if you want to talk about this, mm-hmm. but I as I 
No. Yeah. You went to Vietnam recently. Yes. And you had some really mm-hmm. cool experiences there. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, I know. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I definitely can. I. I mean, I think after all, that's like what that's that was um, not necessarily the main event, but that was something that like th- that's something I really really wanted to talk about. And a lot of what we've been talking previously about identity, um, about um, conflict between countries. Um, about these struggles in being part of the Asian diaspora and never feeling, not feeling as connected to your roots as you'd like to be. Oh my god, I could go on for a while about that. But um, when I mentioned that my mom was probably the most assimilated into Western culture out of, uh, um, out of her family, that kind of, that was, that was something that kind of became ingrained into me. I kind of I'd, I'd always wanted to see where my mom grew up even though she never really talked about it much I know now that a lot of that is because of trauma a lot of that is because she was very young she immigrated to Canada when she was nine a lot of that is because there are things that she couldn't remember and things that she doesn't want to remember because there was a literal war so it was never really something that Visiting, visiting the motherland, so to speak, was never something that I wanted to jump on the chance to do. I knew that I wanted to at some point, but I didn't know exactly when. And this past summer, between early July and mid-August 2019, I went on a six-week trip with my boyfriend, uh, backpacking throughout Southeast Asia. And um, we scheduled our trip around a conference that he was speak- where he was speaking in Phuket, in Thailand, smack in the middle of, our, of, 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 of the trip that we had planned, quite literally structured around this conference at the end of July. So to give you a rough overview, um, in order, we went to Singapore, Vietnam, north to south. Um, Hanoi to um, Hanoi down to Saigon, um, which I will continue to refer to as Saigon rather than Ho Chi Minh City because that's how <laughs> I because that's what yeah. I was brought up saying, obviously. Um, then to Cambodia, then to Thailand, Laos, back to Singapore, um, and then back to Canada with an eight-hour layover in Paris, begin uh, there and back. But what I want to focus on, especially because you've asked and because it ties into this notion of home, into this notion of stories, into this notion of family, into these themes, is what traveling to Vietnam was like, especially because I didn't think that I would do it this early in my life. I thought it would maybe when I was in like my 40s, um, but not, not at the time that I did. And I remember because we did, we went to Hanoi first, a, the, the capital of Vietnam, uh, the northern capital of Vietnam, where I don't have family, where for all intents and purposes, my family considered it the enemy because my family is South Vietnamese. It, I remember being you know, fascinated by being in this country thinking, oh my god, like, I'm in the country where my mom was born, but I still didn't really feel truly home, and because we started north to south, it took a while for that, kind of, for that, not necessarily that feeling of home, but that feeling of, oh, 
I am in this place that has a lot of significance to my identity. It didn't, it took a while for me to feel like that. And even in, even in Saigon, because I didn't grow up speaking Vietnamese, I can count to 10 and I can order food. That's it. Um, and I don't look Vietnamese. Vietnamese people look at me and they see a white girl. Um, so those feelings of isolation, those feelings of not truly fitting in, those feelings of not being enough still definitely projected themselves onto me. And then um, my family um, happened to have the address for the, um, for the house where they grew up. Um, one thing that you should know is, um, after, is, is after the end of the war, all of the addresses and street names in Saigon, and I think in all of South Vietnam were changed um, because, the, um, because the North took over. So my mom didn't know like what her new like what she 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 didn't know what her address was now until I think I think I think she found a her one of her sisters found a piece of mail for, mailed from a from from a very close cousin of um, a very close cousin of theirs um, I think it was mailed to my grandmother either either my grandmother or my grandfather um, just keep an eye on the time is everything okay yeah yeah okay yeah. cool cool um, and it turned out that that address was about five minutes away from the hostel where my boyfriend and I were staying. It was about five minutes away from basically Saigon's Young and Dundas. It wow. was smack okay. in the middle of downtown. Um, this astounded my mom to know because at the time it was not very built up. It was like it was a little rundown. It was mostly residential, but. Um, but with urbanization and globalization, it really, really built up into this like hub of just city life and entertainment. The hostel where we were staying was literally on like a was literally on like a clubbing street. Um, I just remember my first thought when I when I stepped out of the um, when I stepped out of the taxi onto the street was that it kind of felt like a panic attack in visual form because there were so many flashing lights, there were so many really really loud noises, there were just crowds everywhere. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of people like selling cigarettes, and they'd like open up the cigarette boxes, and there was like actually there were actually like four grams of weed in there or something like that. <laughs> um, and I just remember feeling so overwhelmed, and I remember thinking what would my mom think about this but then when I found when when we found the address because it was so close to because it was so close to our hostel um the second day that we were in Vietnam or sorry the second, the second day that we were in Saigon um in the late afternoon when it was it it, it was starting to rain and in Southeast Asia when it starts to rain that means it starts to pour rain yeah. but we yeah. decided to head out and look for it anyway because Saigon is so crowded and so populous most people who live in the city live not just on streets they live in like on like upper or lower floors of alleyways off of alleyways off of alleyways in this like very chaotic maze of just laneways off of laneways off of laneways off of main streets so we found the main street but then we had to go into this alleyway then we went into the alleyway 
And then there were a bunch of forks in that little laneway. We tried, we mostly using Google Translate and like showing a photo on my phone of the address. Eventually, after about five to 10 minutes of walking and trying to figure out exactly which crossroad to take, making sure we didn't actually, we, we didn't accidentally stumble into some poor Vietnamese family's house, not having any <laughs> idea like who these two very white looking people were. Um, we eventually found this tiny little flight of stairs with a little tur- with a little like turquoise door and a tiny little balcony where and that was the that was what I would later realize was the front of the little house where my mom grew up and we were just and we were, I, I remember just I, I remember at the time I was just thinking it's really great to be here I'm gonna take a photo I'm gonna move on we're gonna we're gonna continue on our trip um, and this is gonna be a really good this it's gonna be a good story to tell my mom hey mom we found the place where you grew up even though you know and you haven't been here since you left because of the war and then it turned out that there was this like there was this little middle-aged Vietnamese lady walking up the stairs probably wondering who the hell these two white people in front of her door were looking at us very very confused and i remember i'm because i'm i i I can be like very shy and introverted in front of strangers i remember thinking oh like like what do i do should i just say like just like try to figure out how to say i'm sorry like i just um uh, like i'm 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 sorry to bother you i'll just move on but my boyfriend loaded up Google Translate on his phone and kind of pressed us to communicate to this woman that this was where my family grew up. And with a lot of difficulty, because we spoke no Vietnamese and she spoke no English, we showed her the address, um, the, um, the photo of the address. She pointed to the address and she pointed to herself because as it turned out, she was the widow of the cousin of my, um, of, um, uh, of, um, she was the widow of my mom's cousin who had written that letter and written that address. I showed her a photo on my phone of my, um, of my mom and her siblings as little kids. She pointed to each individual child and said their Vietnamese names. And I know all of their Vietnamese names. And I just burst out crying because I realized that not only had I found where my mom grew up, I learned that I had family there that I didn't even know existed. I had kind of thought up until, I kind of thought up until then because my mom never told me anything because there was a lot that she didn't know or didn't want to say. I thought that either my family living in North America had totally lost touch with family still in Vietnam or that my or or that my Vietnamese relatives were dead and it turned out that it it actually turned out that it was just because my mom didn't really keep like keeping a lot of touch but the rest of my family did so um like so my like my aunts and uncles and like grand and 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 grandparents knew about them but my mom didn't really or at least like didn't know that they were still around so she invited us into her home where her son, my second cousin, was, I, th- I, I, I think he was, you know, just hanging out at home after, um, 
he works as a teacher, but I think at that time there was a summer holiday, so he wasn't he 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 wasn't working. And I, I I remember he like walked out of I think it was out of the kitchen. He just looked so confused, and there was like just like some yelling back and forth in Vietnamese, and, he, and like they sat us down. Um, you know, we like tried to talk kind of like about why we were there, and. Um, like kind of get to the bottom of like how I knew these people because I didn't really know exactly who they were, how we were related um, until um, until like my, I guess great aunt-ish um, the woman who we met on stairs still don't know exactly how we're related I know we're not related by blood though because she's the widow of my mom's cousin um um, she like showed us some photos of um, of you know ancestors of mine, I guess, um, because there is a lot of there is a lot of ancestor worship. There is a lot of reverence of deceased family members in Vietnamese culture that I didn't really grow up with. But it was really it was really great to kind of look at these photos and be like, that's where I come from. Um, she showed me a photo on her iPad of. Um, of a photo of my, um, she showed me a photo of my mom and her siblings at a recent family reunion, I think about two or three years ago. It got to the point where I called my mom at around like 2.30 in the morning, Victoria, BC time. and was like, mom, I think I found our family. Can you help me train? Like, can I put you on the phone and can you talk to them in Vietnamese? And like I said, it was 2.30 in the morning and my mom doesn't speak a lot of Vietnamese anymore. So she kind of struggled through it. But I was able to, conf- I was kind of able to confirm how we were related, that I did indeed have family still there. And the next day they took us up to, um, they took us up to a little, um, uh, a little town called Tainin, about four hours outside of Saigon to meet my grandfather's sister, my, my, my actual great aunt. So knowing that I have like close blood relatives there was totally eye-opening. A little bittersweet because I couldn't communicate with them and I didn't really look like them, but it was incredible. Yeah, that's and that was a heck of a story. So I'm gonna let you speak now. No, 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 no. that's absolutely amazing. I, you, you told me that story a little bit, uh, like that that this had happened a couple of um, when you had gone to Vietnam. Yeah. You had messaged us. You yeah. said that you found your family. Yeah. So I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't know uh-huh. base like exactly, all the details. Exactly what yeah. Yeah. That's really incredible. And I you know, that's that's <laughs> I don't know, that's I, I'm I'm shocked by that. That's Thank uh yeah. amazing. And it must feel really great or weird both. to to meet family that you didn't know existed. Absolutely both. Absolutely both. It's it's interesting because like as as I said, the rest of my family knew that like like knew that they were there and still kept in touch with them. Um, generally like my 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 relatives in, in my my relatives in Vietnam like are very poor. So it's not easy to get in touch with them because even though they do have phones like they don't use their phones very often. Um my grandfather and one of my aunts like wire transfer money to um, to his sister to my um, to my great aunt um, occasionally 
So they are still, they like, they have still been a part of each other's lives this whole time. Because I was never super close with my mom's side of the family, these were not things that I knew about until I went out for them on my own. Have you kept in touch with them since you got back to Canada? Somewhat. I want to make a better, I want to make a better effort. Um, I have my, I have my second cousin, uh, I... Um, or actually both my second cousins because he has a sister who I met over FaceTime but like exchanged like a couple of words in English and then kind of left it at that because she didn't really know a lot of English and as I said I know no Vietnamese so I so I do have my Vietnamese relatives as friends on Facebook oh wow <laughs> um, we talk very very occasionally using like what rudimentary English and Vietnamese that we respectively have um, one thing that I really want to do is um, get some photos that um, get get some photos that we took throughout our trip, but also kind of you know photos of my life in Canada. Kind of get them printed um, and maybe turn them into like a postcard collage to send to my to send to my relatives just to um, just you know provide them with a little update. Probably, I, I, one, one thing I actually need to do when I think of, uh, come to think of it is like write, is like kind of like write a little update, ask my mom to translate it into Vietnamese, and then like just so I can have it easily accessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to make a better effort. A lot of that honestly has been because as soon as I came back to Canada, I immediately went into the job hunt. But they are still, I want to continue to make them an important part of my life. That's really cool, and you know, I appreciate that you shared that story with us, um, with me, and that's that's probably one of the more incredible stories I've actually ever heard. I, Thank you. That that you would go to a foreign country yeah. and then somehow find your mom's yeah. old place where yeah. she grew up, yeah. and then somehow find your family absolutely absolutely it's kind of one of those things that has really it's really helped me reprocess it again actually saying it out loud to you um right after right after it happened when i was in when i was i think i think when i was just in the hostel um after having gone through this um, I remember writing out what happened, and it also really helped me process. But occasionally I'll look back and think, I can't believe that that actually happened. I can't believe that I did that. But at the same time, I do, like I said, because I'm quite shy and introverted, if I had been alone, that would not have happened. Mm -hmm. I do have to hand it to my boyfriend for, like, pushing me to do that, which is yeah. pretty great. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> but it's really surreal but in a really, really good way. Again, bittersweet because it reminds me that I don't, I didn't grow up with as strong Vietnamese roots as I would have liked, but I know that there is now a way as an adult that I can strengthen those roots myself. And one thing that actually is really cool that I do want to add is that um, when I said that my mom had never really been inclined to, she'd never really been inclined to go back to Vietnam, the rest of her family has. Um, my aunts and, uh, all of my aunts and uncles have gone back to Vietnam to visit. My grandmother has, my grandfather has. She has not, um, because she threw herself into her work and into raising a family and never really had much of a desire to go back to Vietnam, kind of until I went. 
And now she and my dad are planning a trip in early 2021. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, which is, I don't know if I'm going to join them, probably because I'm going to be working, but it really inspires me to know that I can, that I can contribute something like that in return for how, for all that my mom did for me. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's a really cool story. I can't believe it. That's yeah. that's even more incredible with all of the details than it's a lot the of message. Detail. Yeah, because I a lot of detail. I remember when you messaged us because I think it was that day or it might that have been, night. I think it was right after. I think I just said, "Holy yeah. shit!" I just found my family, and like, yeah. that was pretty much it. Because I think I, I think I saw the message late at mm-hmm. night. Yeah, you you probably would have because the time difference between Saigon and Toronto is about eleven hours, I think. Yeah, yeah. so that's that's probably yeah. yeah. It's it's even more incredible hearing it in person. So that was really cool. Do you still have time? To, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you still um, have time. Let, let, we can talk about a few more things. Sure. Uh, talk about whatever you're interested in, yeah. but uh, I I do want to ask because I know you like it and yeah. uh, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Emo music. Oh my god. So it oh seems. Oh my goodness. It seems emo yeah. is sort of back in the in the in the talk. I was gonna say. And, and it's it's kind of crazy because I you know I've I've um, kind of read a lot about emo. Mm-hmm. And, um, in the last little while yeah. and I've gotten into I don't know if you know bands like Modern Baseball Joyce Manor these are all like so So those are bands that I am very familiar with their names yeah. but not with their music there's a lot of pop punk that if you told me their name I would totally know but play me a song from them and I'd be like I would not be able to distinguish any of them yeah. from each other well there's there's this whole conversation now mm-hmm. of these later emo bands okay. emo bands quote unquote uh-huh. because emo is such a contested term it totally in the same is. way yeah in the same way indie is a contested term oh, absolutely. like how do you really define genres it's yeah. such a difficult thing yeah and the the there are a lot of people who will say that emo from the 90s mm-hmm. emo from the 90s and early 2000s yeah. in the vein of Let's say you know Weezer, yeah. Sunny Day Real Estate. Yeah, Sunny like, Day Real Estate. That's it. The yeah, Cab, I think is one of them. Yeah. Uh, Sunny Day Real Estate, Jimmy Eat World, yes. Dashboard Confessional, yep. and that mm-hmm. the emo that we sort of yeah. think about that we grew up, which we'll we'll talk about in a second, yeah. should be skipped over mm-hmm. for the real descendants of real emo which would be the modern baseball the joyce manor yeah the world is beautiful and i'm not afraid to die mm-hmm. i don't know it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a weird it's a weird name yeah. but uh i have been listening to a few podcasts uh shout out to vox's uh hooked on pop i think is what it's called yeah, that they have a history on emo that was really cool and then a guy that i know who is a writer for the raptors Mm-hmm. He writes for The Athletic. His name is Blake Murphy. Shout out to Blake Murphy. He has his own podcast called Columbia House Party. Oh. And the first uh, three episodes have been Weezer's Pinkerton, Ooh. My Chemical Romance's Black Parade, Black Parade. Okay. and Fall Out Boys uh, from Under the Cork Tree. Yes. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk about the, the discussion uh-huh. on those podcasts. Mm-hmm 
is how Weezer, how My Chemical Romance, and how Fall Out Boy kind of falls in yeah. that emo genre. Uh-huh. Now, yeah. you Especially because they're all very different bands. Exactly. And you and I grew up in that in those years oh, where yeah. My Chemical Romance really came in, and we listened to Welcome to the Black Parade. Oh, yeah. You and I both love Fall Out Boy, I think. Oh, yeah. We've talked about that. Yeah. Obviously. Um, oh, yeah. So, and then now, they're, uh, My Chemical Romance is reuniting, they're coming back, mm-hmm. um, and then, I don't know if you've seen the, the Hella Megatour, I think is what it's called. Oh, the with, one with, um, the one with Green Day and Fall Out Boy and, and Weezer. Weezer? Yes. Yeah. I yeah, have. triple headliner That's of it. those three classics. Tickets are so expensive for that, though, aren't they? My friend got tickets... And I think she paid three hundred dollars for lawn seats. Yeah, yeah, that explains everything. Yeah. Jeez, people pay a lot for nostalgia. Would you go see that? I'm gonna be honest, not for three hundred dollars. I have seen Fallout Boy live for less than that. I loved them. I think, but like, like I think I'll leave it at that because you know I am I am happy with I am happy with like my job, but. <laughs> am I am I am I three hundred dollars happy? I'm not sure. <laughs> how I'm much, not sure if I have that much expendable income. How much would you pay for that tour? I mean, are you oh God, were were you much. at all a fan of Weezer or Green Day? In order, I would say that I was the big. I was a, I was mostly into Fall Out Boy, then Green Day, then Weezer. But I think if my musical tastes were more similar as a kid to, like, how I am now, like, I feel like more of my music taste is naturally now a little bit more like Weezer. It's a little more toned down. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because it's, again, like, those bands are very, very different, but there's still that flexible emo term that links them together. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know how much I I don't know how much I would pay to see that. Yeah. I'm not sure. I've I've grown mm-hmm. to like Weezer more. Uh-huh. Um I I did kind of get hooked onto that song. Say it ain't so. Oh, yeah. Um but then recently I've gone back and listened to albums like Pinkerton and some yeah. of their earlier albums yeah. before all the Bolly, Buddy Holly and yes. the, the yeah. more pop stuff. Before that, yeah. And it's actually really good and oh, yeah. like really kind of it it reminded me of honestly like my taste in Fall Out Boy but yeah. but without like before all of the pop influence, it was kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of cool, and I think you're you're I, I feel the same way about uh, Weezer as you, mm-hmm. where I find that if my tastes today mm-hmm. yeah dictated who I actually yeah. listen to exactly yeah I would probably listen to more Weezer probably and then probably Fall Out yeah. Boy and then Green Day yeah definitely yeah. definitely and like that that was actually something that I was thinking about when it comes to Fall Out Boy because their earlier stuff was even even from before from Under the Court Tree was a lot harder was a lot not necessarily grittier but was definitely less polished are you a fan of Take This to Your Grave oh yeah so I think Take This to Your Grave is better than From Under the Court Tree. Probably. That's not necessarily a hot take. Um, I know a lot of people who would agree with you. Um, from Under the Court Tree is 
definitely the one that I prefer more just because it holds way more nostalgic value to me. Um, I remember listening to From Under the Cork Tree a lot more than Take This to Your Grave. I think because I wasn't really into like that grittiness at the time. Um, but you're definitely not wrong in recognizing that it is good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, favorite Fall Out Boy songs? Oh, God. Oh, my goodness. Grand Theft Auto, Saturday. Oh, yeah, Boy. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Shitter, We're Going Down. Yeah. Um, Of all the gin joints in all the world? Um... Oh my god. Sophomore slump. So, yeah, sophomore slump or comeback of the year. I'm gonna be honest, there are a lot of songs I can think of where I could like sing you the first line, but I cannot remember what they're called. Sing I think me the first line and let me see if I can get it. Drink down that gin and kerosene and come Nobody spin puts on baby in the corner. With... Yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Um Oh Promote the Cork Tree really has some Really great songs. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I yeah. recently listened to it because mm-hmm. of the Columbia House Party podcast, yeah. mm-hmm. and oh. just tried to get my grips back on it. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk on that podcast about how the middle part of it is a little filler, um, including sophomore slump. Include yeah. And I think they didn't really rate uh, nobody puts baby in the corner all that high, but mm-hmm. I love it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah. of all the gin joints, really is uh, mm-hmm. like they they that one's tended a, yeah, to really that, like that of all the gin joints. That one is really really good. Yeah, yeah. That, that one was. I had like a weird mashup of nobody puts baby in the corner from all the gin joints um, stuck in my head at work a couple of days ago. Like I remember, I, I I remember I was just like going about my business, just like stacking some things on shelves, and I was just like kind of singing both to myself. But I was like, I cannot remember the name. I cannot remember the names of both of these songs. And some of that might be because, like, they're such long titles, you know, in typical Fall Out Boy fashion. Yeah. And I have the were some, span of a goldfish, but... What were some of them? It was like, uh, I slept with someone in, in Fall, Fall Out Boy. Boy. And all like, yeah, I slept with someone in Fall Out Boy and all I got was this dumb song written about me. Um, our is, lawyers our, make our, it... Our lawyers made us change the name of the song so they wouldn't get sued. There are a lot of... Um, fuck. Um, I was... I'm trying to remember what's by Fall Out Boy and what's by Panic at the Disco. Because I was oh. about to say the difference between martyrdom and suicide is press coverage, but that's Panic. Um, Lying that's is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. But it's better if you do. But it, that's a great song, actually. I think that's my okay. favorite Panic song. I think my favorite Panic song is... I never actually really listened to Panic all that much. Compared to Fall Out Boy. I listened to... It's funny, I listened to Panic a lot kind of after, like, after their, like, heyday, so to speak. Like, after, I listened to them a lot, actually, um, after their first album. Um, I Write Sins, Not Tragedies is a classic. It is not necessarily my favorite song by them. Um, it's one of those bands, and honestly, Fall Out Boy is another one of those bands as well, where it's so hard for me to pick a favorite song, just mm-hmm. because there's so much that they've come out with. Um, with Panic, I don't real like, with Panic, I have not listened to their full discography, because now it's just kind of become the Brendan Urie experience. Yeah, um, yeah. And 
I hear a lot of I hear a lot of those songs on the radio now a lot. Like I hear High Hopes all the damn yeah. time. But it's um, like not it's at not, all emo anymore. No, it's become very it's become very pop. It's become very radio friendly. But I'm not necessarily looking at that as a negative. I think there's this kind of especially in like indie band, emo band culture the fandom likes to see like kind of likes to point fingers at this concept of selling out yeah or at least definitely really really used to a lot i would say kind of in the early 2010s or late 2000s i kind of wonder if that's necessarily the if that's necessarily still the case because musicians are allowed to evolve it's mm-hmm. okay to have preferences it's okay to say that their older stuff was better but i don't necessarily think that I don't necessarily think that it means the artists themselves have gotten worse. Yeah, I think... Uh, like, there's, there's a lot of, like, Save Rock and Roll that I love. I do love Save Rock yeah. and Roll. I, and, um, I, I love the title track American with... Beauty, American Psycho, I actually really, really like. I love the title track with Elton John. Elton John, with the just a very short oh, yeah. cameo, but it's yeah. great. Also, yeah. Patrick Stump is a great vocalist. Oh, yeah. Like, I, mm-hmm. I remember one of the big... Uh, Flaws? I mm-hmm. no no not flaws. Backlash. Yeah. That, that, oh, that's a better word. Backlash yeah. against yeah. Fall Out Boy was mm-hmm. that Patrick Stump's voice was too whiny. I remember that's what people would say, but but that's then, so like that's it's like it, it's an iconic kind yeah. of sound. But also he he came out with a solo album. I was gonna say, have you heard Soul Punk? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's really great, and it really showcases his vocals. Yeah. Save Rock and Roll, the title track really showcases it really does it really does um there are a couple of songs i think off of infinity on high which get very theatrical and that is also where he really showcases vocal chops thanks for the memories it's an arms race um no um yes but um oh what a catch donnie or I is love that, Water Cats or, or is that from Folia Duh? That's Folia Duh. That is Folia Duh. I can't remember. But there, there is one off. There, there is one from Infinity on High, which is really, really, which like strikes me vocally. Um, I think it's. Oh no, no, I remember. You're crashing, but you're no wave. Okay. It's the one about okay. the. It, it's like the. Uh, it's. It, it reminds me of like a courtroom drama. I can't remember exactly what it's about, but yeah. there's something very, very compelling about. There's there's something very compelling about like the combination of the lyrics and the vocals. Yeah. Oh yeah. I actually really like Folie Deux. I know some people are not as high on mm-hmm. Folie Deux, mm-hmm. but first of all, that opening track, I think it's called Disloyal Disloyal, Disloyal Order, Order of Water Buffalo. De- detox just to retox. Yeah, detox, detox just to retox. To reta- yeah. Uh, the opening riff is yeah. from Bob O'Reilly. Oh. The Who, and I love that. I I love it. It's great. And then Mm -hmm. What a Cash Donnie is an is an absolutely amazing song. Oh yeah. Um, and I've always thought of Folia Duh as the end of the first phase of Fall Out Boy, and really that kind of pop punk emo version of Fall Out Boy Mm -hmm. with What a Cash Donnie being almost like we. Are, we're going yeah. to take a break from yeah. this. We the, might end this. Yeah. We we need some time yeah. off, and we need to regroup and maybe change things. Yeah. So this is our almost last yeah. goodbye for this era. It's like their swan song. It's their swan song. That's yeah. that's exactly what it is, and it's I mean it's it's even in the song itself where yeah. 
they do like little flashbacks at the end of the song to previous songs that they did. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Even going back to Take This to Your Grave and then before that totally. Fall Out Boy's Evening with yeah. Your Girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, growing up growing on that. Up. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Oh the nostalgia. Yeah, I know. No, absolutely. Did you listen to My Chemical Romance as well? I listened to a lot of individual songs by My Chemical Romance. Helena was my jam. I <laughs> Oh god, I'm such a fake fan. I have not listened to the Black Parade in its entirety, okay. but I have listened okay. to um, I have listened to Danger Days, and it's really really interesting to see these different phases of My Chemical Romance as they not necessarily take themselves less and less seriously because they like because they know what works for them, and it's not necessarily a matter of an artist taking themselves seriously or not, but just these different totally thorough totally well thought out concepts it's just every every album is every album is like its own universe yeah Mm -hmm. the black parade concept album is pretty great you should Mm -hmm. give that a listen but i absolutely love famous last words oh yeah and obviously welcome to Mm -hmm. the black parade like every once in a while yeah every once in a while i'll just start saying the opening lines yep. when i was a young, a young boy, boy my, my father, father took, took me into the city, city. It's just yeah <laughs> it's iconic it really really is yeah that's it the emo mating call <laughs> what else did you listen to um what else did i listen to yeah um so around that time um around that time i would have probably been around this is actually a really really good question um, because this ties into this ties into my my, my upbringing in Victoria. Um, growing up in a growing up in a small, pretty whitewashed city, where I felt very isolated. I listened to I listened to a lot of music that was not really super mainstream at the time. I didn't really know a lot of other people who listened to emo or listened to pop punk. Um, and this would have been like especially between the ages of like 11 and 13 um i actually discovered a lot of canadian indie mostly through honestly mostly through much music and then i started kind of like I would like Google bands and then find band and then like find like their side projects or bands that they had toured with. Um, so I think I think Fallout Boy and Panic at the Disco kind of got me into like Mariana's Trench because they're almost like seen as like yeah. a Canadian equivalent with like their harmonies, but also that very that that like very pop punk, very emo kind of sound that. Email, yeah, so-called kind of sound. We were talking got, about Mariana's we, French earlier, yeah, because yeah, yeah. on the way here, I was mm. listening to Masterpiece Theater oh on my, my in my car. Oh yeah, and I absolutely mm. love it. Like oh, yeah. Masterpiece Theater Part Three is this yeah. really cool mashup of yeah. like all of the different songs yeah. on the album. Yeah, and I think and it, it's just yeah. it's, it's really smart. Yeah, and it's like the last song on that album, right? Like like yeah. like that like like that is like their grand finale off of what is a literal theater piece. Yeah, um, Fix Me was so formative it was very very good for my like painfully depressed heart like when i was like 11 (laughs) um 
so my taste in music at that time was a weird mix of this like like of this so-called emo like pop punk and a lot and um and then kind of bridging the gap you'd have like Marianas Trench there was like three days grace theory of a dead man um Alexis on fire Alexis on fire and then that kind of bridges the gap into like a lot of Canadian indie so what Canadian um, indie were you listening to um my gateway drug was probably metric um I can't remember exactly how I I can't remember exactly how I found them I want to say was it fantasies no, live it out. Okay, live it out, or live it out had, or it was like between live it out and fantasies. Um, there was a time, there was like one time that they did a concert that they that, that they had a show, I think in Toronto, with Billy Talent. Um, Billy Talent was another one of like, like of my favorite bands. Um, when I was like especially like between the ages of like twelve and fourteen, um, so I think I found Metric through them. And then, which led to Feist, which led to Broken Social Scene, which is now my favorite band. Yep. We could go on forever about that. Yeah, we can, we um, can go on forever. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which, um, Death from Above 1979. Um, just a lot of... A lot of these vaguely tangentially related Canadian bands... And when I and growing up in Victoria, where not a lot of bands really played, because it costs a lot of money to bring all of your equipment from, like you know, on a ferry or whatever from Vancouver, I used to, you know, kind of look at like concert listings in Toronto and think I would love to move there someday. And now I'm here in Toronto and I have not seen all of the bands that I wanted to see live, but they most of them are still around. Yeah. I've seen Broken Social Scene I think three times now, so. Uh, okay, you grew up here. That doesn't count. I, I, I'm not gonna. I, I, I've seen them a lot. Let's just you say. Have, you have. Let's just say I've seen them a lot. Well, uh, yeah, and you can because you have the you because they they were accessible. Yeah. Yeah, and that accessibility was something that I always wanted. Although they did go on hiatus for a long exactly. time. Exactly. That is true. That is yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about? Um, like what? What, what were what you thinking we, of? What are you interested yeah. in recently? Like, um, what have you been watching? Yeah. What have you yeah. been listening to? Like, what are you? Ooh. What have you been thinking about? So one thing that we were, one thing that, um, one thing that we that we've been talking about, one thing that I've been, actually, I haven't really talked as much about it as I thought I would about this kind of struggle in, um, in identifying myself in being caught in the middle when it comes to being mixed race one thing that um one thing that's really coming to mind and hitting very hitting home for me a lot especially considering like my experiences at university um with um you know with partying and drinking and um being part of like small communities and that and and a lot of that with being mixed and also with being mixed race and seeing similarities um, I just started reading Chanel Miller's uh, memoir, Know My Name. Chanel Miller is a writer who is best known for being the sexual assault victim in the Brock Turner case at Stanford. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. She was known as Emily Doe up until this year. And she is half Chinese. She's Chinese on her mom's side and white on her dad's side. 
I have to admit, because of my bias, until she spoke out and identified herself, I was kind of just I was I was picturing a white girl. Um, but it really, you know, it just goes. It, it, it goes to it goes to show you that with with sexual assault, it can be anyone. And as I read, as as I'm reading her memoir, I'm seeing so many, so many little nuances in in sentences about her family or sentences about her life as a student that really like unexpectedly just strike me over the face like oh my god I could have written that and I'm not going to talk a lot about I'm, I'm not I'm not going to talk a lot about sexual assault itself I'm mostly focusing on her words as a writer because she's an incredible writer but I cannot recommend it enough she's an incredible strong brave woman who did not necessarily ask to be brave she just wanted to write. She just wanted to be creative. And one thing that I feel like people might ask is, like, why does it matter so much to you that she's mixed race? Why does it matter to you that she's half Asian? Other than the fact that I am too, one of the things I think about a lot is kind of this idea of, like, a culture of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, Asian families don't always have the best methods of dealing with mental health or mental illness dealing with trauma, dealing with depression. And there's kind of this expectation to be silent, kind of sweep it under the rug so you can so so you don't worry your family, so you don't worry your community, the people around you. And when Chanel Miller identified herself and I saw her face and I read some words that she'd written about um uh, basically about her upbringing and about her family I just remember thinking that could have been me mm-hmm. and I remember thinking I want to know more from this woman and I want more I want more people to know that I want more people to know that there are always ways to rise up out of these to rise up out of these situations so yes that's my that's my addition that's my shout out. <laughs> cool, cool. I I think that's a pretty good way to end it. I think that was a pretty powerful way to to really kind of sure. cap this off. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add? I I think that's it. Shout out to the Lakeview once again for hosting us and for however long we've been here. Yeah, wonderful we're almost, milkshakes. We're almost at two hours oh unedited, but yeah. we'll mm-hmm. I'll, I'll clean things up. Yeah, but obviously I'm always glad to be at the Lakeview because milkshakes. <laughs> Um, I will spend however long it takes here at the, at the Lakeview. Um, I've spent, I've done too many projects here. Like I've, I've done really? like assignments here and mm-hmm. essays with just like a strawberry banana milkshake in hand. That's not necessarily and, a bad thing. Oh, it is not I mean, a bad thing. I, mean, like I, I love said, it. Like, I keep forgetting that they have outlets here. <laughs> I would get more. I are there outlets in the Oh, I, I have no, no idea. There, there, there are, no are idea. outlets like at there the bar. Oh, at the bar. That's yeah, it. at the okay. bar. And that's where I usually mm-hmm. sit when I'm, you know, around. Yeah. Um, anyways, I think awesome. that was a really great conversation. You know, thank you. thank you for coming on to the podcast and for sharing your story, and really for that that really incredible story of meeting <laughs> your family in Vietnam. I think that's uh, inspiring. That really is inspiring. Um, so thank you for coming on, and uh, I appreciate that you were able to share your story. And uh, 
hopefully everybody likes this. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to word vomit at you and share stories for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad that you came on. Um, so, yeah, and uh, uh, listeners, uh, I will talk to you next time. If you see this on iTunes, uh, do the whole thing. Like, subscribe, share. Is that what it is? I don't know. That's YouTube, isn't it? I think that's it. I'm listening to your podcast on Spotify, so that has like a follow, subscribe kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. iTunes, Spotify, mm-hmm. Google Play Music, whatever, whatever app you use. Whatever I, you're using. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Talk to you later.